those who are going to be baptized right after the morning worship service, and I hope that you will please stick around and uh, encourage them and rejoice with them as they uh, follow the Lord in baptism. Right now, though, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 25. Okay, well, there we are. You heard me earlier because you laughed. So that's good. Alright, so we are in Isaiah chapter 25 this morning, and this is, uh, this is an amazing portion. Isaiah often will shift gears, and we just finished a section that actually began in chapter 13 and extended all the way through chapter 24 that was a portion on God's judgment. From 13 to 23, God looks uh, at the various nations right beside each, uh, Israel, and then extending out, including Egypt and Ethiopia and other places, and he pronounces judgment on each one. And we said that most of those judgments in those chapters have been completely fulfilled, but in chapter 24, there is yet a judgment to be fulfilled, and that is a judgment that Almighty God will bring upon the entire world. And we looked at that, and we compared some of that to uh, the things that we see unfolding in the book of Revelation. Now we come to chapter 25, and the theme changes just a little bit, and yet it really is a continuation of what God has been teaching and what God has been doing, because this is the culmination to which all things are moving. This is a, a begins with a word of praise and thanks, and then it looks, beginning in verse 6, at the millennium, that 1,000-year period of time when truly we will have heaven here on earth. Jesus Christ himself will be ruling and reigning from the capital city of Jerusalem, from the temple, and he will be administering the entire world, and all the nations of the world will be coming up to worship him in Jerusalem. If there is any rebellion, and apparently there will be some, and realize that I'm I'm getting all the details from various parts of Scripture. We're not able to look at all of them this morning. But there in, in those few countries where there might still be some resistance, uh, God will deal with them quickly. Right now, God is very patient, very forbearing with the sin of mankind. And He's not bringing judgment instantaneously. But He will during the millennium. So things are a little bit different. And this begins in chapter 25, verse 1, on a very personal note of praise. Look with me, please. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name, for You have done wonderful things. Your counsels are of old, or Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Beloved, though God is at work in the world on the broad scheme, and though He is working with nations, and He is moving nations around, and He is accomplishing His purpose through nations, the foundation 
is the individual before Almighty God. And here, Isaiah, as he is seeing all of these things unfold prophetically, they were all prophetic, they were all future from his time, as he's seeing these things unfold, he focuses on the foundation, the core, the bedrock, and it is a personal relationship with Almighty God. We, in this New Testament era, understand that that is a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, had not yet been fully disclosed in the Old Testament period. They worshiped God, the one living and true God, and surely there are hints in the Old Testament that God is a triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but it wasn't nearly as clear to them as it should be to us. Now understand, when I say that the Trinity is clear to us, I'm speaking in relative terms. Because how can we compare God? How can we... There, there's nothing in the created universe that we can point to and say, oh, this is like God. No. There's just more than what we can comprehend. We see it revealed in the Scriptures. But we do not have a complete and full explanation. We'll see an illustration of it in our baptismal service. And I'll explain that when we get out there. So hopefully you'll make sure you come to get the explanation. But even then, it's not crystal clear to us. But what is crystal clear is that no one comes to the Father apart from a personal relationship in Jesus Christ. No one comes to God apart from a personal relationship with Him. And so here, as this three-chapter section begins, rejoicing in God and extolling His greatness, it starts by saying, O Lord, You are my God. Is that true for you this morning? Can you personally, individually say, God, you are my God? Or is there some other God running your life? What is it that gets in the way between you and God as He's revealed in the Scriptures here? What is it that distracts you from Him? What is the focal point of your life? Those kinds of questions help us to understand from our own perspective who we ultimately worship. Do we ultimately worship ourselves, our own desires, our own wants, our own pleasures, our own purposes? I mean, is it easy for us to set God aside and do our own thing? Or is God Himself our chief joy? And not our bank account, and not our house, and not our car, and not our friends, and not our job. Is God Himself our chief joy? If all those other things were taken from us, would we be like Job who has said, The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who's your God this morning? 
Isaiah begins this three-chapter portion of praise by saying, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. And, and it's not without purpose. It's not without meaning. It's not without foundation because he says, for you, this is because, here's why I'm offering this praise. For you have done wonderful things. Wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and true. Have you ever stopped and thought about your life and the circumstances of your life and how God has been at work in your life maybe even before you came to know Him as your Savior? You can look back even as an unbeliever, and you can say, you know what? God spared me of something. You know what it is. You can see God's mercy and God's grace extended even before you personally came to know Him. But surely, for those who are believers in Christ, you should be able to say, you know what? I remember such a thing. I remember this thing, I remember that. And you should be able to point to various times in your life. Maybe it was times of great joy. Maybe it was time of great sorrow. Maybe it was a time of great testing and trial. But you can point to those times and you can say, God was faithful to me in those times. He made promises in His Word and I saw the fulfillment of them in my life. So our worship and our praise of God is not just because we don't have anything else to do and want to fill up some idle time. No, no. Our worship and our praise to Almighty God is rooted in our experience and our relationship with Him. That's why Isaiah is going to say a little bit later on, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them speak up. You know, when we get together for our twice a year uh, communion service or, or love feast, I enjoy and I look forward to hearing those testimonies. When we open the floor during our, our one portion of our uh, fellowship meal there, and we ask for some testimonies, and to hear what God has been doing in your life, is a great blessing. It encourages me in my faith. It encourages your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Yes, you may be speaking about a, what we would say is a great victory and a joyous moment, and your brother or sister seated near you may be down there in the pit right at that moment, but you know what? It reminds them that God does bring folks up from the pit to a place of joy and hope and praise again. The circumstances of our lives are going to go up and down like this. But God, who is ever present with us, supports us and sustains us even in those ups and downs of life. And we should give Him praise. We should give Him the glory for what He does. Our faith 
is not just fixed out there in the future somewhere. <clears throat> Our faith is fixed on the living and true God who walks with us day by day and we can see the wonderful things He has done. His word, His counsels of old are still faithful and true in our lives even today. So now in verse 2, Isaiah begins to look at some future things. This hasn't happened yet when Isaiah writes this, but it's going to happen. He says, For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. You have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. Isaiah is seeing that day when God acts on behalf of his people and all the nations, all the individual people of the earth who have set themselves against God and against God's people will be held accountable for their deeds. They'll be brought to justice and God will deal with them ever so severely because of their rebellion against Him and because of their treatment against God's people. These verses have yet to be fulfilled and yet there were some small fulfillments along the way almost like little mileposts or little signposts that pointed people on. You know, right now, in Isaiah's day, Assyria has not yet captured and brought down the northern kingdom of Israel. They were about to. That was going to happen even in Isaiah's day. But at this point in the writing, it hasn't happened yet. And when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom of Israel, they killed many, they deported many, they treated others with great contempt. It was a time of terrible destruction. But you know what? God dealt with Assyria. God brought them down. And that was His judgment upon them. Even for the, the excessive treatment of how they conquered the northern kingdom. And he did it with a country called Babylon. It was just a tiny little backwater province as Assyria was ascending to the, the power pinnacle of the world. But there was already the seed of Assyria's destruction sown and eventually Babylon conquered Assyria and destroyed the city of Nineveh. And then turned its attention to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and destroyed Judah. But God destroyed Babylon. So there's all these little signposts as God is working and manipulating nations and people to do His will, to bring spiritual light to this world, to cause people to look up, to wake up and say, you know what? It's not just about us. 
It's not about the kingdoms of this world. It's not about who's the greatest power on the face of the earth. It's about God, and God can do in all of the nations of the earth as He pleases. And what He pleases to do is to exalt His chosen people, to bring them to faith in Himself, and to use them as His instruments to bring both salvation and judgment to the entire world. That's what God is doing, and He's doing it today. Have you been listening to anything other than the virus news? Have you been listening to what's going on over in the Middle East? Have you been listening to things outside of the United States? We are not the center of the world, beloved. We are not. Jerusalem is. Politically, spiritually, all of those things. Watch what God is doing among His chosen people. Oh, they are still in unbelief. I get that. They are still denying that Jesus is the promised Messiah. They're still in denial. But God is faithful. His counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. God told Abraham that he was going to choose his descendants, Abraham's descendants, that they would be his people, that there would come a day when he would dwell among them, and they would be his people, and he would be their God, and the whole world would come to worship in Jerusalem. Hasn't happened yet, but we're moving in that direction. Day by day, moment by moment, nation by nation, individual by individual, God is working behind the scenes in this world so that even the wicked, though they do not desire it and would not admit it, even the wicked God is using in their wickedness to accomplish His ultimate purpose. When the Assyrians captured Israel, the northern kingdom, they didn't set out that morning and say, oh, let's do the will of God, let's go be an, uh, an instrument of judgment on God's people, Israel. That's not what they thought at all. They thought, we are going to go, and in the name of our gods, we are going to conquer that other nation, and we are going to subject them to harsh punishment and treatment. We're going to subdue them and make our kingdom great on the face of the earth. That's what was in the minds of the Assyrians. And yet God used them to accomplish His purpose. That's part of the mystery of the sovereignty of God. Part of the mystery of the providence of God. God does some things directly. That's His sovereignty. God does some things indirectly. That's His providence. And God indirectly accomplishes His purpose even through the ungodly. What a shock for them to realize someday that in spite of their denial and their hatred of God, God used them in accomplishing His purpose. Though they never knew Him and will spend eternity separated from Him, what a shock that will be. Verse 6. 
And in this mountain, we've seen this before, haven't we? In fact, Daniel is going to make much of it long after Isaiah's day, long after the captivity excuse me, uh, has begun. Daniel is going to reveal some things to us that were revealed to him by God or to Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Nebuchadnezzar saw a great statue, head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thigh of bronze, legs and feet of iron and clay mixed together. And he saw a stone that was cut from a mountain without any human agency involved. And this stone comes and it strikes the feet of that great image and the whole thing just crumbles and turns to dust and the wind blows it away and this stone becomes a huge mountain that fills the earth. The prophets will often refer to kingdoms as mountains. That's not an unusual image. A mountain, of course, is something that's strong, it's powerful, it's, it's secure. You know, mountains are awesome things. And so here, in that image of, of the beast, or of the uh, statue and the stone that destroys it, God is indicating through to Nebuchadnezzar and through Daniel's interpretation of it, that God's kingdom is going to replace all the great kingdoms of the world and it's going to fill the earth and there will be only one kingdom and that is the kingdom of Almighty God. In this mountain, Isaiah is going to use that same image. In this mountain of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains but it itself is kind of on a high place there. In this mountain, the Lord of hosts, notice the word Lord, it's the I am, it's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, the eternal one, the ever existing one, and he's called here the Lord of hosts, in other words, he's the Lord of the armies of heaven, but not only of heaven, he's also the Lord of the armies of earth, no army does anything apart from God's permissive will. No army conquers apart from God allowing them to conquer. The Assyrians did not conquer the Israelites because they were greater than the Israelites or because they were greater than Israel's God. No, God permitted the Assyrians and later the Babylonians and later the Greeks and later the Romans, to conquer God's people. Because God is the God of armies, of all armies. In this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Man, this is a 
powerful three verses. He's going to prepare the wedding supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast. You see, in, in Jewish culture, a young couple would get betrothed. They would become, we call it engaged, and in that day it was a little more of a legal thing. Uh, it was called a betrothal, and, and for some things they were already considered as husband and wife for legal purposes, though they still did not live together as husband and wife. It was an engagement sort of on steroids a little bit. And what would happen is when you were betrothed, the, the bride-to-be would still be living in her father's home. The groom-to-be would be going and preparing the place for her. He would be making the building the house or whatever he was doing. He would be preparing that place for her. And when that place was prepared, he would go and he would get his bride and he would bring her in a grand procession to the place that he had prepared. And from that day on, for sometimes as much as a week, there would be a celebration. And there would be feasting. And there would be joy. And there would be laughter. And there would be fun and excitement. He was bringing her, the love of his life, to the place he had prepared for her. Do you see the image that comes over to us in the New Testament? Jesus Christ left the splendor of heaven. He came to this earth to call out for himself a bride. And he's made promises to the bride. And he's given a pledge, the Holy Spirit, the down payment of even greater things to come. And we are saved, we are redeemed, and yet we don't experience the fullness of that yet, do we? We're still here. I mean, this is a nice sanctuary, and St. Thomas is a nice place to live, but this ain't heaven. We're not, we're not enjoying all of the things God's prepared for us yet. But Jesus, who has gone to prepare that place for us, John 14, is going to come again and receive us to be with him. Do you see the parallel here? When Jesus Christ comes back to this earth to establish his kingdom, because this is the place where we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. The kingdom belongs to him, and he will be the one who will reign on the throne of David. And we, his bride, will be with him. What happens is, there's a tremendous marriage celebration, a festival, a feast, at the very beginning of the millennial kingdom. Where you and I will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And it's for all people. Notice verse 6, the Lord of hosts will make for all people. You see, the invitation to be a part of the bride of Christ is open and available to all. Anyone can be included if they come to Jesus Christ on his terms. You don't get into the kingdom of heaven just by wanting to, by forcing your way into it. 
You can't earn your way into God's kingdom. You can't buy your way into God's kingdom. There's only one way that you can come into the kingdom of God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, through repentance of sin and faith in Him. That what He did on the cross is sufficient to cover and cleanse and remove your sin to make you acceptable in God's sight. And it's open to all. So why don't all people turn to God? Well, look at verse 7. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. What in the world is that talking about? Well, have you noticed that People seem to go about life and, and not really know what's going on. Have you ever felt like you're going about life and you're not really quite sure what's going on? And, and things just don't make sense to you? And how is it that you can explain the Word of God to somebody and it just right over top? And yet it makes sense to you as a believer. Why don't they get it? Because spiritually, we come into this world dead. Spiritually, we are blind until Jesus Christ opens our hearts and minds through the work of His Spirit. What was it that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do when He came to this world in John 16? He would bring conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes so that we might see the truth of the Word of God and repent and be saved. But what is the natural tendency of the human heart? To resist God? To blindly turn away from God? To suppress what we know about God so that we don't have to deal with God, or at least we don't think we do, that's what Romans 1 is all about. It says that the things of God are clearly revealed in the things that He's created. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has already put eternity in our hearts. We know instinctively that there is more than just this physical life. We know it. But we suppress it. We try to transform it, you know, and, and make it into something else. We want to do anything we can to avoid having to deal with Almighty God. So when the Spirit of God brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, and the, the person who is experiencing that turns to God and cries out and says, Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner, this veil of confusion, this veil of ignorance, this, this stupor is removed. And now suddenly things begin to make sense in the Word of God. It doesn't all happen maybe at once. You don't suddenly become an expert in the Word. But you begin to understand. And little bit by little bit, line upon line, precept upon precept, Line upon line, here a little, there a little, 
you begin to understand and you see the consistency of God's Word from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it begins to make sense. Because, beloved, this is a supernatural occurrence. Salvation is a supernatural thing. Just to remind us that we're really dealing with supernatural issues, turn back with me to chapter 24. This, this little section here uh, is in chapter 24, verse 1, is really the heart of the struggle that we're facing. It shall come to pass in that day, Isaiah writes, that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. Oh, you mean that there's more to this business than what meets the eye? Who are these, these hosts of exalted ones on high? They're the fallen angels. You understand, beloved, that this world is made up of things which are both seen and unseen. And there is a spiritual battle going on constantly around us. And it's on two fronts. The human heart rebels against God, and the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places urge that rebellion on and are involved in their own rebellion against God. This universe is in rebellion against its creator, and it starts out spiritually. That's why, beloved, as you listen to the rhetoric coming from our politicians, you know, because of these mass shootings and so forth that have occurred lately, everybody talks about how guns are bad. Now, if you're a hunter, like I am, hopefully you're not like I am, because I haven't gotten anything in a while, but hopefully you've gotten some deer or whatever. But you have probably more than one rifle or shotgun at home. Have you ever seen them get up and walk out the door? No. Same way with the bows and arrows. They've, they've not gotten up and walked out the door to go kill somebody. It's the human heart that is the problem. And all the laws in the world will not change the human heart. God already gave us one, didn't he? Wrote it in spelling. Thou shalt not murder. That's what the word means there. There's 11 words in Hebrew for, for killing or taking of life. The word that's used there is the word for murder. You shall not murder. How much more clear can it be? And yet, do people murder? Absolutely. Why? Because of the heart. It's the heart that is in desperate need of change, and that is not something that comes through physical restraint or physical laws or anything of that. That is something that is changed only by a spiritual 
transformation. And that only happens when God removes the veil, the covering, the, the stupor, the whatever, that covers our hearts and minds. The Spirit of God brings conviction. And suddenly we turn to Him and we are saved. And our conscience is reinvigorated. And now we begin to see right and wrong for what right and wrong really are. We begin to see the truth and to understand the truth and to let God work in our lives to transform us into the image of His dear Son. One of these days, God is going to do that for the world. Notice verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. Oh, wouldn't that be great? We in our congregation, just in this year, have experienced several of our beloved ones leaving this world and going directly into God's presence. You probably know friends, maybe extended family members. Death is an ever-present reality in our lives, isn't it? An ever-present reality. And it seems so final. I can't tell you how many funerals I've preached in almost 40 years of ministry. It's been a bunch. I'm starting to know more people in the cemetery than I do in real life. And it looks so final. It looks so permanent and cold and hopeless. But beloved... God has already broken the power of death. That happened at the resurrection. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the psalm is saying, death cannot keep us praying. Jesus, our Savior, He <laughs> tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. And one of these days, we're going to see that become a reality in the resurrection. What a great, great, glorious day that's going to be. Swallow up. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this afternoon. I was going to look at it, but we're running out of time. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? The sting of death is sin. And its power is the law. But thanks be to God, the victory is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 9, it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. It is then... When Jesus Christ returns to this earth and Israel is spiritually transformed, they look up and they see it's Jesus and they mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son and they repent and they turn to God. It's then that they will say, This is our God. And God will say, These are my people. And we're going to be there. We're going to be coming with Jesus Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We, we've already been, at this point, we've already been taken out of the world. We've been purified and cleansed and, and wearing beautiful white robes of righteousness. And we're coming back with Jesus Christ. 
just like that wedding series, you know, the marriage thing, coming to the place of his kingdom to rule and reign with him. What incredible joy there will be. Notice verse 10. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him, and straw is trampled down for the rest, refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim, and he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust. This is a, a final picture. Moab here was a, was a singular nation and a real nation, and it was related to Israel through Lot. Lot, you remember, was Abraham's nephew. So they were the descendants of Lot and were relatives, somewhat removed, of Israel. But they were also very rebellious, very hateful toward their relatives. In fact, in three specific ways. They fought against Israel physically, morally, and spiritually. And Moab sort of becomes an emblem of all rebellion against Israel, of all the, excuse me, the hatred poured out against Israel. When God was bringing his people up from Egypt and they needed to cross, uh, wanted to cross the territory of Moab to go into the Promised Land, the Moabites said, you will not cross. We'll come out against you. They resisted them physically. As Israel was camped there on the border, they resisted them spiritually. They tried to get a fellow named Balaam, who was a prophet, to come and curse them. To put a curse on the nation of Israel. Of course, Balaam said, you know, the ones that God blesses, I, I can't curse. And he was right, even though he tried to times to do it. He just couldn't do it and he ended up pronouncing a blessing every time. And they resisted Israel morally. They were kind of able to keep them from coming through the territory but they couldn't get a curse put on them but they sure could corrupt them morally and spiritually and so a whole troop of these beautiful Moabite women over into the camps of Israel and they begin to intermarry. And of course they bring their gods and goddesses with them and it was that spiritual influence that corrupted Israel and brought judgment. And as that resistance physically, spiritually and morally was true of Moab against Israel, so it is of the world against all of God's people. The world has set itself against God's people to do all that it possibly can to destroy the testimony of God's people. But it will not succeed. Oh, there may be individuals whose lives are ruined because of that. Certainly it was true in Israel. You know, when those Moabite women came over, there were certainly willing Jewish men who were able to you know, take those women and do with them what they wanted and they adopted the Moabite ways and God killed off, I'm thinking it's about 32,000 of them. The rest of Israel was spared, but, but those individuals were ruined. And so it is today, even in the church, you know, the world 
wants to destroy the testimony of believers. Now the world is never going to destroy the church, the true church. The world is never going to corrupt the true church, the bride of Christ. But individual believers, individual congregations, yeah, they can get tangled up with the world and get enmeshed in all of that and they can be led astray and, and they can make shipwreck of their lives and end up under the judgment of God. I think Ananias and Sapphira were ones like that. They were believers, but they had their eye on the world and on God. And they wanted the praise and the accolades of men and they wanted to look like big shots in the church. And so they pulled off what they thought was something that would get them what they wanted. Lots of praise from fellow believers and a little extra money in their pockets. But God wasn't fooled, was he? And they died as a result. Beloved, this passage of Scripture, I wish we had more time to look at more of the details of it. This passage of Scripture is an amazing passage. It points out several things to us. Number one, God is at work in the world. He's accomplishing His purpose. Number two, His purpose is to bring spiritual light and life to the world. Number three, the world is set against God and does not want spiritual light and life. This world is a dead world in rebellion against God and it's ripe for judgment. And God's going to judge it one day. But for those who turn to Him, who repent in their hearts and minds, God has a tremendous salvation and it begins to impact our lives right now, today, and it will continue to do so until the day we are called home to be with Him and it will continue to do so through all of eternity, as we rejoice in the presence of our Savior, our God, who then is not ashamed to call us His children, because we've trusted in Him. Beloved, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you come to that place in your life where you've said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner? If you are a believer, do you see God at work in your life? Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Ask Him to give you wisdom. Help, ask Him to help you see clearly what the truth is. To remove that veil. To remove that confusion. To remove that cloud that sort of fogs over our understanding. So that we might understand His Word clearly. And apply it properly to our lives. But it all begins with your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can establish that today simply by asking. It's not something earned, not something deserved, it's not something bought. It's a gift that's received. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, maybe there is someone here today who has heard these kinds of things before and they really haven't made much sense, but your Spirit today is opening their heart and giving them some understanding and though they may not understand at all, they feel that tug in their soul to respond to you. Father God, I pray that they will not suppress that anymore, but that they will respond to the work of your Spirit to turn to Jesus Christ 
and be saved. And Father, for those of us who are believers, help us to grow in our faith. Help us to share that faith with people around us. Help us to have eyes to see what you're doing in this world and to rejoice in it. Help us, Father, to live the kind of life that honors Jesus Christ and that points others to him. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.